This podcast contains a light-hearted discussion of international foods where we will likely pronounce words incorrectly, get some facts wrong, be politically incorrect at times, and accidentally offend people through cultural stereotypes. If you can handle all that with good humor, then grab a drink and let's do this. Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests for tasty facts, foodie secrets, and more. In this episode, we explore the stories behind some of our favorite dishes in Bangkok, Thailand, including the controversial history of one of Thailand's tastiest curries. So let me get this right. It's a Cambodian word that was adopted by the Thai to use Indian spices in a mixed dish that is now Thai, but being heavily contested by the Malaysians. Plus, a little adventurous eating of some of Thailand's more unusual high-protein street snacks. Eat the palm weevil love, eh? Their protein is 32 to 34%. So it's a lot more than chicken. Yeah. Crazy amounts of protein going on for all you bodybuilders out there. <laughs> this is your... Stop with your protein shakes. Go eat some palm weevil love, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Dish, and this is our first episode that is a what to eat in episode, rather than a feature on one specific dish. We'll be talking about many different dishes, the history behind them, the crazy ingredients that have been brought together to make them, and today we're going to be talking about Bangkok in Thailand. Absolutely. There, if there's one place around the world that we instantly think of when we think of uh, a collection of food like where is the one place that we just love to go and eat definitely bangkok is probably like i don't know top five yeah gotta be top five gotta be top definitely five. top 10 but probably top five yeah because the whole life of everyone in bangkok everyone in thailand people are obsessed with food oh, i love always, thailand or i've never seen a thai person that isn't just always eating yeah or talking about eating yeah, everyone loves food. They have like eight meals a day or something. It's, yeah. I don't know, it's crazy. There's just people eating constantly. And although the government's been making some changes in Bangkok and uh, reducing the street food scene a little bit, we're hoping that it's not going to completely destroy the whole street food craziness. It's just they're being moved and repositioned and hopefully things will still continue and the cuisine will still be as awesome as it has always been. But this episode, we're not just going to be talking about their famous street food. Of course, we will be talking about street food because how can you not? Yep. We're going to be talking about some of the great and famous dishes and where you can find them. So sometimes, you know, we found some great street food places that we really love. And sometimes the best version of it is actually in a restaurant. Yeah. So some histories behind the famous dishes and some tips on places we like to eat them. So is food always best eaten on street side on a plastic stool? I, I love it. I personally love it. But I like the ambience of it. Sometimes the more refined version in the restaurant is better. Yeah, if they've got better quality ingredients and they've, I don't want to necessarily say better technique because there are some people street side that are just dishing out some amazing food. But yeah, just a little bit more finesse. Yes, of course. And so we're going to be talking about some pretty famous dishes. Some of them you've probably heard of, but hopefully we're going to introduce you to a little history behind them. I know Thai food has become more famous around the world, but perhaps the history behind some of those dishes hasn't yet. And we're also going to hopefully introduce you to a few new dishes that you hadn't heard of before this episode as well. 
Okay, so let's talk through some of the most important ingredients that make up the flavor base of Thai cuisine. All right, number one, kaffir lime and its leaves. Kaffir lime is a citrus fruit native to tropical Southeast Asia. Its fruit and leaves are used all around that area in Southeast Asian cuisine. And it's also used as an essential oil in perfume. Its rind and crushed leaves emit this intense, sharp citrus fragrance. Uh, not surprisingly, it's similar to lime, and those lime leaves add a distinct flavor to a lot of Thai cuisine. Thai basil or, or basil. Basil. We say basil. Thai basil is native to Southeast Asia, and it has flavors hinting at like anise and licorice, and it's got a slightly more spicy flavor to it. And it's more stable under high or extended cooking temperatures than the sweet basil that we're used to using in Europe. So Thai basil has small, narrow leaves, purple stems, and pink purple flowers. So it's quite different from the sweet basil that we, we may have got used to when we were growing up. Thai cuisine also uses other types of basil, like holy basil, which is used in drunken noodles, and many chicken, pork, and seafood dishes. And uh, holy basil has a more spicy, peppery flavor to it. Yeah, they got loads of basil going on in Thailand. They even have Thai lemon basil, which actually has this additional citrus flavor to it. It's really quite surprising. Coconut milk. Yes, coconut milk is actually the liquid that comes from the grated meat of a mature coconut. It is not the water from inside the coconut. So instead, to make coconut milk, they grate the white flesh of the coconut while it's submerged in water or the actual coconut water. And they knead it and they knead it and they knead it until the water becomes milk. And the rich taste of coconut milk is due to its high oil content. Naughty, naughty. Most of which is saturated fat. It's not good for you, but it tastes great. Mm -hmm. Coconuts originated somewhere around Southeast Asia. The islands around Indonesia and India is the uh, most predominant areas. So they've historically been a food in the region throughout most of recorded history. Next up, bird's eye chilies. Yes, when you think of Thai food, you probably instantly think of spicy hot dishes loaded with chilies. But the interesting fact is that all chilies found around the world today have their origins firmly placed in Mexico, Central America, and South America. They were spread to the rest of the world by the Spanish and Portuguese colonists, the missionaries and traders. All together, they sent this around the world, as well as many common crops such as maize, tomatoes, and pineapples. The chili varieties that you find in Southeast Asia today didn't exist there until the 16th or 17th century. Before then, there was no such thing as a spicy hot Thai curry. Yep, didn't exist. Although other chilies are available in Thailand, the tiny bird's eye chili have become a famous chili associated with Southeast Asia and Thai cuisine. The bird's eye chili is tiny. It's a small little chili, but it is quite hot. It measures around 100,000 to 225,000 Scoville units. So it actually is less hot than a habanero, but still many times more spicy than your jalapeno. Okay, next up, shrimp paste. Salty and intense. It's ground dried shrimps, pretty much. Uh, it's known as capi, which Coffee. is the shrimp paste is an essential in all Thai curries, which we'll be talking about shortly, thanks to its very bold umami flavor. Yes, it's made from tiny shrimp or krill uh, that have been salted and left to dry in the sun and ferment. The use of kapi dates back to the 8th century because it could be preserved and used for months without refrigeration. Handy when you don't have a fridge. Yes. Uh, it also adds an instant flavor bomb that underpins the distinctive taste of Southeast Asian cuisine. Finally, but definitely not the least important, lemongrass. A stiff, fibrous grass that is mashed to produce this pungent lemon flavor and aroma. Or the stalks are sometimes just chopped up coarsely and thrown into stews and soups. I it, love it. Oh, I do love it. It's fantastic. All right, and that's the lightning round. Okay, so let's talk about our first dish 
which is more than one dish. It's many, many, many dishes. It is, of course, Thai curry. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit of curry and curry paste. Because one of the most important things about curry in Thailand is you make up your curry paste before you make up your curry, and you use that as your flavor base. Absolutely. So curry is universal in Southeast Asia, but it is pretty much generally agreed that curry was first made by the Indians. They used ginger, turmeric, and garlic, and the first evidence of it was recently discovered in India, dating back to around 2500 BC. And the word curry is an anglicized version of the Tamil word kari. So as settlers and traders visited India, they transported recipes for curry throughout Southeast Asia, including Thailand. There is another story that's a little bit more specific and maybe a little bit older, but possibly not even true. That in the seventh century, Indian monks traveling through Asia taught many different people around the continent how to make curry, and that local varieties just came about because of the differing local ingredients and through a slow adaptation to local flavor preferences. Yeah, so you will find that unlike Indian curry, the Thai curry. Is- Is more floral, uh, with the addition of aromatic herbs like lemongrass and the kaffir lime leaves that we talked about before. The exact origin of curry in Thailand is completely unclear, but local ingredients definitely shaped the dish. You've got your coconut milk, so that would have replaced like the butter ghee as the main fatty liquid component of the dish. Though some of the curries are based more around water and oil, like kang som, uh, which is a sour and spice fish curry, and kang pa, which is your jungle curry from the north. That's going to burn your face. Yeah, if you yes. ever try that, but that's an area where coconuts were less available. Jungle curry is more of a herbal stew, which is really heavy on lemongrass and kaffir lime, leaving out those uh, coconut components. So yeah, curries mainly made with coconut milk. Not always made with coconut milk, but always made with a beautiful spicy paste. Underneath it, mixed with various ingredients. Now, three of the most famous Thai curries that are available across Thailand and probably well, across the world, really. You've probably heard of these: red, green, and yellow curry. Keeps it simple, right? Yeah. So, we're going to talk shortly about some other famous curries as well. But for each of these three main curries, the red, green, and yellow. They actually all follow a very similar process for being made. First of all, yes, they make the curry paste, and this is going to form the base. Yeah, all three of the main curry pastes contain the same core ingredients. We were pretty surprised about this because we assumed that these three dishes must be very, very different. They, they taste they, they very taste different. different. But yeah, they all are based on the same core ingredients, which you will find: shrimp paste, uh, onions or shallots, garlic, lemongrass, galangal, which is like a mild ginger, ground coriander or cilantro for those who like to use that cilantro word. Specifically, the roots, It, not the leaves, in yes. this case. Uh, also, cumin and coriander seeds, and your kaffir. Lime leaves. Yeah, so pretty much every single one of those curries has all of those ingredients in the paste, maybe in different proportions. But the proportions vary depending on who is making it. But they always have to include those ingredients; otherwise, it's not really one of those three curries. But here's the main difference, and this is the surprise: the difference is actually pretty small. So for a red curry paste, they use red chilies, and for a green curry paste, they use Green chilies. What do they use for a yellow curry? Well, the yellow curry is a little bit more complicated, but I thought it was crazy that pretty much the base ingredients for those two famous curries, which taste quite different when you eat them, all the base ingredients are the same. Yeah, but it just comes down to that chili. And it comes down to the color comes down to the chili, which can also affect the heat of the dish. But also, I think when people make up that final dish, there's some other ingredients we're going to mention uh, that they add at the end. That affects the end flavor. How much sugar you put in, etc. Okay, so what makes the yellow curry so different so to the other two? The yellow curry actually is a little bit crazy different. It has some extra ingredients. Preferably, you're going to want to use yellow or orange chilies, so you don't affect the flavor too much. You could use red. 
uh, if you have to, but uh, that's just a preference. But the actual distinct yellow color doesn't come from chilies like it does with the colors of the other dishes. It comes from turmeric. So it, this is sort of like a more of a close Indian Thai fusion. Not only are they adding turmeric, but they're often adding just like curry powder, Indian curry powder, which has additional spices in it like ginger, mustard seed, cloves, cinnamon. So all of those flavors that you associate with Indian curry are added like as a small part to the main base that is very Thai. And it just, it's like two curries in one. And actually it is my favorite Thai curry is the yellow curry. It's very interesting. I do love a yellow curry. So um, yeah, once you've got that base paste in place, try saying that. You just did. The base paste in place. The paste is then fried with the protein and vegetables that you want to add into the curry. It's up to you. Then they usually throw in the coconut milk, palm sugar, and also that squeeze of lime at the time of cooking. Or also you can throw it in a little bit more as the diner, you know, to suit your taste. Yes. So you're balancing all the flavors out with those extra ingredients. And it does affect the flavor quite a lot. If someone puts a load of sugar in, the curry just tastes completely different. So the paste and these additional ingredients they combine to make up those four essential flavors of Thai cuisine. Some sources say it's five essential flavors of Thai cuisine, but when we did a cooking class, they were always talking about the main four. So let's talk about the main four first. Yeah, so the balance between salty, uh, which is from the shrimp paste and the fish sauce, uh, the sweet from the palm sugar, the sour from the lime and the lime leaves, and the hot from the chilies. Yes. So that's the main ingredients that are making up that curry and making that classic Thai flavor. But also other sources talk about bitter being an essential ingredient. It doesn't seem to be one that features a lot in curries, although in green curries, you sometimes get these bitter little eggplants, tiny little oh, eggplants. You do too. I'd forgotten about them. They are sort of tasty, so you might get that. And some people say that the herbs you're throwing in, maybe if you're throwing in the, the Thai basil leaves at the end, that they're a little bit bitter. I don't find them that bitter, personally. I guess it depends on your palate. So anyway, you can either have four or five flavor profiles. Yes. So the origin stories for these three curries are, I guess, shrouded in mystery. Uh, the basics of curry appearing, we don't really know exactly how it happened. It just did. There was the fusion of flavors and people traveling around the region. But... There are some other Thai curries that actually do have very specific stories and histories behind them. So, firstly, let's talk about the Penang curry. Now, what did you discover in your research that makes this so controversial? Okay, so Penang curry is a, it's similar to a red curry, but it's got the sort of thick sauce, it's got coconut milk in it, uh, salty and sweet. You know, it, it really comes out very similar, but a bit milder than a red curry. Uh, it also has the sort of nutty background flavor to it. And that's because they, with this one, they grind up peanuts to thicken the sauce. So that's actually more similar to the sort of North Indian thing where they grind up cashew nuts or other different nuts to make the curry. Mm -hmm. So it's got this really strong Indian influence that's different from a lot of the other Thai curries, which is why it, there's this controversial discussion about where Penang curry actually comes from. Now, the earliest mention of this dish in a recipe book was in 1890, but that's not saying that it didn't exist before because, of course, recipes are created maybe years and years after the dish was created. But the word Panang sounds a bit like the word Penang, which is an island in Malaysia. So there's this theory that because this dish seems a bit more Indian than the other Thai curries, that Indian workers or immigrants came across from India to Penang Island in Malaysia 
and they brought this curry with them. And also, if you've ever been to Penang in Malaysia, there is a strong Indian influence and community oh, there. I mean, it's definitely true that immigrants did move there Absolutely. in the 19th century and possibly before that as well. But did they create, is it Penang or is it Penang? Well, this is the thing. So Thais are fiercely contesting that this is crazy. Well, for one, we went to Penang and we ate around a lot and we were trying to find Penang curry because we thought it must be from there. We couldn't really find it. I mean, I think it probably exists in some places, but it was not easy to find, which you think for a dish named after the island would be easy to find, but it was not. But actually the word Penang, which is how it's pronounced as well, it's not pronounced Penang. Uh, it's, this word actually has a very specific meaning that's derived from ancient Khmer language. So this has been around for a long time and it's been adopted into Thai language many, many, many years ago as well. And it means to cross in the way that you would cross your legs. And very specifically when talking about cuisine, they're talking about how a chicken's legs would be crossed so that the chicken could sit upright whilst it cooks on the grill. Now, that vertical cooking of chicken on a grill is definitely something you see around the world, and it's definitely something that you see in Thailand. But however, the Panang curry eventually evolved into the situation, instead of the chicken being covered in the Panang paste and then roasted on a barbecue, they were just chopping the chicken up, and it was much easier to throw it in a stew pot and then just leave it to cook up as a curry rather than on the barbecue. And that's where the dish name comes from, Panang curry is it's a chicken dish, which they were using these sorts of flavors and pastes and spices, which then eventually became a curry later on, so possibly it's a, sometime in the 19th century. So let century. me get this right. It's a Cambodian word that was adopted by the Thai to use Indian spices in a mixed dish that is now Thai, but being heavily contested by the Malaysians. Potentially. I don't know if it's being <laughs> contested by all the Malaysians or if it's literally just a few really angry people online trying to say that Penang is their curry when apparently it's just not. And because I couldn't find any real evidence that Penang is where it comes from. Like the sources were weak. Whereas the Penang story... Not the curry sources, the actual... <laughs> no, sorry. The, the information trying to prove it was definitely weak. Although it is a mild curry, so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, it, it just seemed after doing a lot of research on this that the Malaysian case wasn't very strong. Not a lot of people actually seem to support it. Just a few people going, oh, it must be from Penang. I'm not even sure if they're Malaysians, people saying that. I think that's just a lot of people make, made the assumption, um, ourselves included, yeah. that is actually it was just sort of like an introduced curry and it was embraced in Thailand because they do curries really well and they just sort of took that on and, and made it sort of their own. But yeah, I'm guessing it probably was theirs all along. Yeah, funny though, I think I've seen it on menus in Bangkok where it's called Penang curry. I'm not saying that people were doing great English spelling when they were translating menus in Bangkok, because that doesn't always happen. But yeah, maybe they just thought if we use that word, people know what it is, and they're more likely to buy it. I don't know. But there just doesn't seem to be any strong evidence to prove it's from Penang. If you are Malaysian, and you have a great grandmother who cooks this dish and has always cooked this dish, and it's completely different from the Thai version, and they've ripped it off, please, you know, tweet us, or send us an email or whatever. Yep, tweet us at Food Fun Travel. All right. Let us know. Send your rage towards our Twitter yeah, account. That's we're fine. happy to have corrections for this show. We're probably never going to replace anything. but <laughs> <laughs> We'll do a corrections corner in the next episode. Check out the comments on the show or notes. Or maybe it'll just be a bonus. We'll have to do this bonus episode that's just corrections and apologies to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but we do research everything. So, you know, this is what we've found with researching different pages and bouncing off ideas from different pages and other pages that we discover and uh, just 
seeing what's out there. And that's what we're just reporting back. So let's talk about another one of my favorite, favorite curries in Thailand, the Masaman curry. And the Masaman curry actually varies quite a lot from the other ones because it has some extra spices in there that is definitely not part of the traditional Thai palate for their curry pastes. Things like cardamom, cinnamon, cloves, star anise, uh, cumin, bay leaves and nutmeg Ooh, even. Yeah. So yeah, these are definitely not your standard Thai curry flavors. Now, I'm not sure from the sounds of it this is exactly a Thai curry, but it's become a Thai curry perhaps. Yeah, so masaman or matsaman, uh, it's absolutely not a native Thai word. So it's actually generally thought to be uh, influence of the Muslims who came in around about the 19th century and they were calling the dish Musulman curry. In fact, I've seen the word Musulman used on some menus as well. It seems to be all of these words are interchangeable. Yeah, and so apparently the, the Musulman curry is just, it's just a word uh, for, for Muslim. So, so it's, it's, the it's the Muslim curry. It's the Muslim it's curry. It's the curry they were making when they turned up. Yeah. So according to a couple of people, journalists and scholars and whatnot, they said that the dish originated in the 17th century in central Thailand at the cosmopolitan court of uh, Ayataya. Ayataya. And it was the brought, old city, the old capital before Bangkok. Yes. And it was brought in uh, by Persian merchants who were, came and visited the Thai noble families and their descendants of that time. So some of the research that these scholars have done on this suggests that a merchant called Sheikh Hamad Komi, who was like a predecessor to a Thai noble family, the family of Bunag, um, they're, they're his descendants. He actually turned up with this dish and then I guess that family got created. They became ethnic Thais eventually. They're integrated in society and, and now it's the Muslim curry that came out of those traders. Yeah, on the flip side, uh, others contend that the Masaman curry is a southern Thai dish which is actually influenced by the Malays and by Malaysian and Indian cuisine. Uh, and they actually think that uh, it comes from the Malay word of Masam which means sour. But I don't like that description because most Masaman curries I've had are not particularly sour. So there we go. So yeah, all right. I'm, Case solved. So, done. Done. Sorry, Malaysia. We're not trying to give you a hard time and say that you're making stuff up. No, we're going to do an episode on Malaysian food too, but it just seems in this particular episode, we're like, nope. The two countries have had a, a long history, very close together, and I guess there's some rivalry between each there other. There'd be rivalry indeed, and there's also going to be um, a lot of just criss crossing over because, you know, that whole area was just so involved with traders and people just here i'll give you this if you give me that and you give me this and i'll give you that and you know it just was this crazy mishmash of so many influences it's really hard to see where anything came from and where anything is actually original so you know pretty much take everything with a grain of salt because it was just such a crazy time where everyone was discovering new things it's really hard to pinpoint when anything was like ground zero and was created at this time there was no big bang of it's the world of fusion. Everything's a fusion in cuisine. And the more we research about food, the more we learn that it's just fusion. Everything's a fusion. Something came from somewhere. Something came from someone else. Who exactly invented a dish? Unless you've got them doing it on video, which you don't for any of these, then yeah, it's very hard to prove absolutely 100%. For some dishes, we found a few that you can. But yeah. for curry, it's definitely a bit of a mishmash. Uh, one thing I actually found really interesting about the Masaman curry was that it was really popular with the nobility uh, and the king in particular, uh, King Rama II of Siam, who was king from 1767 to 1842. And um, he... 1824. Otherwise, that would have made him really old. 
What did I say? You said 1842. Oh, he well, Give him almost you know, an extra 20 years. Hey, he did well. He did well. He was well. already doing pretty well, going from 1767 to 1824 <laughs> in those days. Damn. But um, he actually wrote a poem for his queen, Queen Sri Suryendra, uh, who was his wife, his beloved. And the second stanza of the poem actually reads, Masaman, a curry made by my beloved, is fragrant of cumin and strong spices. Any man who has swallowed the curry is bound to long for her. Wow. So That's where does the, he love his wife or the curry? Well, he loves her for making the curry. And they do say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And apparently for King Rama II, that was very, very true. I'm guessing the poem is a little bit more pithy in, uh, in Thai than the yeah, English translation. Yeah, this is the English translation. So, you know, a lot's lost Not in quite that. Shakespeare in the English translation. Nah, but, you, know. you get the jibe of it, you know. Uh, the first ever recorded recipe for Masaman curry was a chicken Masaman curry with bitter orange. So this recipe was from 1889, but as we've already read, there were definitely references to this curry long before 1889, which is another reason why it makes it very difficult to just say if a cookbook was written that that's the definitive evidence that that's when the curry came about. Interestingly enough, a sway towards the uh, the Muslim side of that's where it came from is that the, the curry is most commonly made with chicken. Obviously, that sits with Islamic dietary laws. Now, today, you can have it with duck, beef, mutton, goat, that Thailand, sort of stuff, so but very rarely pork. Interestingly, pork is very rare because it is, of course, forbidden in Islam and uh, it's not very common in this particular dish, which sort of adds a little bit of evidence behind the Muslim side of the argument. But Musliman curry is amazing and it's definitely become a very big part of Thai cuisine. So if you can head over to Thailand and eat some of that, we're going to give you a, a reference later in the episode to the restaurant that we really liked it at when we talk about another famous Thai dish. But you're going to yeah. find out about that in a minute. I'm not going to... Not going to give it away yet. Obviously, curries are a huge part of the culinary tradition in Thailand, but let's talk about another dish that is almost universal in Thailand. It is everywhere. Yep, that is tom yum soup. And actually, and in fact, the word tom means soup. So when Tom introduces himself, when Tomo is in Bangkok, the Thais always find it really funny when you order this soup. And they ask you your name. They're like, what's your name? You're like, Tom. And they're like, Oh, Tom! Tom Bang Tom Yum! And we're like, yeah. <laughs> they love it. And the word, the word yum or yum, sometimes pronounced more with an A sound, uh, it refers to a spicy and sour flavor. So it's a soup made with the spicy and sour flavor. Yeah, so, that's yeah. where you're getting your lemongrass, your kefir lime leaves, your galangal, uh, lime juice, fish sauce. Of course, fish sauce is in everything. Uh, crushed chili peppers. And it just is like this one mouthful of Pew, pew, pew. Oh. That's how I'm going to describe it. Pew, pew, straight in the mouth. Oh, yeah. It just gets you. Yeah. Gets you. I love it. Especially, like, if you have tom yum in Cambodia, it's really mild. And then in Thailand, it's really strong and sour, and it just hits you. Yeah. I love it. So, tom actually refers to the boiling process. So, you've got tom, which is the boiling, and then yam refers to the Thai spicy and sourness of it. Yeah. The boiling process of making a soup. Soup, spicy soup. Soup, spicy yep. That's my name. That's it. Or something. Not surprisingly, this is another one that sort of goes back into the, the way deep, dark historical depths in yeah. terms of the history behind the dish. It's a little difficult to be like, it was January 8th, 1911. The this man dish was, was invented. The man was old Pete. <laughs> And he in was Thailand. <laughs> but anyway, it comes, the history comes from a uh, boiled freshwater shrimp soup. Um, so, well, they had loads of shrimp, and of course they wanted to eat them, but you couldn't just eat them straight out of the river because the river was probably pretty filthy. So you grab the shrimp and you throw them in some boiling water, then you can eat them. 
And then when they ate them, they went, hmm, could this be better than just boiled, plain boiled shrimp? Maybe it can. Let's yeah. add some sour flavor and some classic Thai spices and just see what comes out of this. Yeah, they were trying to balance the fishy flavor with a little bit of something else. And, and that's what they did. Uh, Tom Yum is really characterized by its distinct hot and sour flavors, which those extra herbs and spices that they added in just gives it the absolute perfect balance. Uh, the pew pew in your mouth. But it, yeah, it's a balance that's very strongly on the sour and spicy hot side. So when you say balance, there's definitely no sugar. Well, if there is sugar in it, you don't taste it. It is strong. It is strong, strong flavor. Maybe uh, some whole pieces of galangal get thrown in. I've definitely bitten into those before whilst trying to eat it. <laughs> it's um, always an interesting moment. Yeah. Obviously, if you've been to Thailand before, you've heard of this dish. You've probably had it already. But if not, this is definitely a number one dish to try. Do not be afraid. Yep. And yeah, where, where would you go for it? Where would you go to eat it? Okay, we have eaten this at a few places. We like to try it as much as we can. But two places really come to mind when it comes to Tom Yum Soup. One is Siam Wisdom. It is a fantastic restaurant. So that's where you're going to get your more refined version of it. It's uh, a really lovely restaurant that is just doing some really delicious flavors. And that's where you can go for that. Secondly... See, the reason why we don't really want to mention this is we can't direct you how to get there. We had a really great Tom Yum soup in the Chattachook Markets one time. That place is huge. If you've ever been there, it's a maze. I can't even direct you to get to the place, but there is a place in there that, takes, <laughs> that makes really good Tom Yum soup. If out of the hundred Just or so Just try vendors. them all. If you've got the time, make your way around and try all the Tom Yum soups. And one of them is the one we're talking about. Anyway, I mean, I think the point is that it's a street food option in so many places and you're only going to pay a couple of dollars for the dish and if you don't like it, then move on to another one and try another one somewhere else. It's, it's super cheap. It's strong, bold flavors. So oh, yeah. we're just giving you a heads up on that if you like and, and sour. So um, I personally love it. I've got a big sour profile that I really enjoy. Tom doesn't like sour so much, but actually he really likes the Tom Yum soup. Yeah, the soup works for me, even though I'm not a big sour fan. All right, let's talk about one of your favorite dishes. Mm. That is Yum Woon Sen. Um, yum again. So this is another sour, sour flavors mixed Yeah, I told this. you I like the sour. So that is your glass noodle salad. Now, the reason why I like this in particular is it's the light refreshingness of having your glass noodles which are cold and then with the salad bits that are also served cold but then it has this sour and chili element that's just like like if the tom yum is pew, pew, this is like boom punch in the face yeah so we did also discover in our research that yum can also just mean mix so a mix of spicy sour is exactly what yum combining the flavors is a mix so in terms of cuisine yum means that mix of spicy and sour, which of course is what they have in the Tom Yum soup, as we were just discussing. Exactly. So in this salad, we've also got a mix of spicy and sour. But this is all dry. So where you've got the soup before, this is all like a sort of... And cold, right? So cold. Cold, yeah. I like it. I find it very refreshing. You've got your main ingredients can be like raw, pickled, fermented, sun-dried, smoked, steamed. Like that main thing it can be a lot of, it can be a lot of different things that's your main, which could be... So they can throw anything in the salad, but the important part seafood. is glass noodles and spicy and sour flavor. That's exactly. the key. That's the key to the dish. Exactly. And then they might throw some shallots, onions, fish sauce, lime juice. This one does contain sugar, which is very Thai. A lot of Thai dishes do contain sugar if 
even if you can't taste it, they put some sugar in. Even with the soup, as I said, who knows? There might be sugar in it. It's just normally so sour you can't taste it. Yeah, and the noodles that you have, uh, they're actually glass noodles or cellophane noodles that they're also known as because they're transparent. And they're actually made from things like um, mung bean or sometimes it's getting more popular that they're using like a potato starch or sweet potato starch. But traditionally, they were um, all made from mung beans. Well, specifically in Thailand, they're almost certainly still made from mung beans. And it sounds like the whole potato starch and sweet potato starch being used to make them was more brought into Japan in the 17th and 18th century and then maybe came down to Asia a little from there. But it seems like mainly in Thailand, it's going to be made from ground mung beans that create these noodles that go completely transparent when they're boiled. And they don't even have to necessarily be boiled. You can just put them in cold water and they just eventually become soft. Exactly. So they're very similar to like your rice vermicelli, but should not be confused with them because obviously one is rice and one is mung bean. But they, you know, they kind of got that similar texture to them. So do we have any idea when these might have eventually been turned into a dish or is it another one that's just lost in history? You know, they, they think that this sort of influence might have come down from China and moved south from there exactly when no one really has any idea. But eventually it has made itself uh, to Thailand. I can say that I've never had a dish similar to this similar to this anywhere but in Thailand because as I said it is served as a cold dish and not a lot of places I found in Asia do the glass noodles cold with the the sour spicy salad. But in China you definitely get them served inside hot dishes mm -hmm. like hot pot. We've seen them thrown in hot pot Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. And apparently there is some sort of Sichuan dish where they are served cold but I haven't seen it personally. But that's just what I read. Apparently that could have been the original version of the salad. So to my mind, just as likely that those glass noodles moved south, they were being used in hot dishes and Thailand went, well, it's a hot day anyway. It's really hot here. It's much colder in Sichuan region of China <laughs> than it is in Thailand. Okay, well, what about having these cold? Why not? Let's try that out. Yep. And so I think it's a really fantastic salad to have on a hot day. You will end up sweating at the end of it, most likely. But once again, as with all Thai dishes, just make sure you ask for the level of spice that you want, because I've had some of these that have burnt my face off and others that have been much milder. So it all depends on your personal tastes and how you want to have it. But definitely on a hot day in Bangkok when you're sweating your ass off, it's nothing like a nice glass noodle salad. So from glass noodles to rice noodles, one of Thailand's most famous dishes and their national dish, Pad Thai. Of course, we couldn't do this episode without talking about Pad Thai. Everybody knows Pad Thai. I think probably everyone's eaten Pad Thai. Would I be correct in but, saying so? Well, not everyone. My dad probably hasn't. I think that's a phrase I'm going to be using throughout this <laughs> the series. The whole series. <laughs> we'll make Quite a t-shirt. <laughs> You've probably tried it, but my dad hasn't. <laughs> uh, so, of course, Pad Thai, that stir-fried rice noodle dish that's commonly served on street food and carts all over. It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. everywhere. So, it's made, uh, just for a bit of background, for you, which you probably know, it's soaked rice noodles, which are then stir-fried with things like eggs, firm tofu. It's flavored with tamarind pulp, fish sauce, dried shrimp, garlic, shallots, uh, red chili peppers, of course, palm sugar, which is really important to the making of a good pad thai. It's their type of palm and sugar. Of their course, special sugar in Thailand. They're always yes. using palm sugar. And of course, served with lime wedges and roasted peanuts on top for that yep. crunch. Yep, there's some really important ingredients in there, like the tamarind instead of lime. If you get a cheap one, it might be with lime. If you get a cheap one, it might be with soy sauce rather than fish sauce. Oh, it's so disappointing when you get that. And it's just not as good. So these are really important if you want a authentic pad thai that's really going to give you that flavor rather than the cheap ones they sometimes serve on Khao San Road. You've got to avoid those stalls and you've got to go somewhere that's doing it properly. Yes, once again with the history of pad thai, there is some controversy. Oh. But... We're not going to tell you. 
Oh, we're keeping it a secret. We're keeping it a secret because actually we're going to do a complete story of Pad Thai in a complete The Dish special feature episode, which is available now. So once you finish listening to this, you can go and have a listen to the full Pad Thai episode and find out what that controversy is. What could it be? Mm -hmm. So check out the rest of season one and, of course, the Pad Thai episode by subscribing to The Dish Food Podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or, you know, wherever you listen. Just give us a search for The Dish Food Podcast. You will... Find us there, and uh, you can listen to that Pad Thai episode right away. Yeah, I like to uh, be on Podbean, and then it just I have it selected to automatically download new episodes. Because then when you're on the bus, and you're like, oh, I didn't get any podcasts. Oh, it's like, oh, no, it downloaded automatically. Thanks, Podbean. For the full list of dishes and restaurants mentioned in this podcast, head to foodfuntravel.com slash Bangkok podcast for the entire tasty list. All right, let's move on to a crazy one. Our little six-legged friends and no-legged friends, the insects. Yes, I feel that if you are visiting Bangkok, then you should indulge in some crin- crunchy, crunchy insects. Some little insect protein treats, perhaps? Exactly. If you visit Bangkok's flower market, which is called Pak Glong Talad, that will also be in the show notes. We'll put all this in the show notes so you know where they are. Then you will find if you go there at night, late in the evening, that there are people just standing on out on the streets selling these insects in the market. So Thailand... They're a big fan of insects. It's not a novelty. Uh, no, I think some people, if you see what's on Khao San Road and you'll see some people walking down with like scorpions on a stick and, you know, random crap on a stick, you might think that, you know, the Thai people are just taking the piss with tourists and going, ha ha, eating the insects, suckers. Uh, but that's not the case at all. Actually, Thailand's bug farming industry has become a growing business over the last 20 years and it is a very popular treat, uh, snack. You get it in a little plastic bag like you would your candies. And, you know, it's so it's good. For, it's cheap and it's so full of protein. It's it's really good for you. Actually, 80% of countries in the world today eat insects. And over a thousand different species of insects are frequently consumed. But uh, Thailand, at least as of 2013, which is the most recent information we could get on this, was the lead producer for insects that are for human food consumption. Yeah, you can't just go chowing down on any old insect. No, there are some insects that are being made in other countries for animal consumption as feed, but for humans going and chomping on these things, Thailand currently is making seven and a half thousand tons per year, or at least in 2013 they were, probably more probably now. Probably more now, I'd say. And, um, and at the moment, there's over 20,000 different insect farming enterprises uh, across Thailand, which produce over 200 different types of edible insect species. Of course, some of those species you can imagine would be crickets, yes. grasshoppers, palm weevil larvae, mm. and bamboo caterpillars. I've had all of these, and we're going to talk through a little bit about them. But I think the main takeaway is that kilo for kilo insects are like way less harmful to the planet in terms of taking up resources to produce them as a food product. Compared to something like pork, they're like two to three times more efficient to produce insects. You're not using as many natural resources in order to get this protein on the plate. Don't get us wrong, we love our pork, but should also be eating some insects. Should be, maybe. I think pork's better, isn't it? Let's face it, pork's better. <laughs> well, maybe they'll they'll manufacture some when tasty they... pork belly crickets one day. Yeah, if crickets tasted like pork belly, that would be good. But actually, crickets 
which are very popular, of course, in Thailand. It's definitely one of the ones you see around. Also Cambodia, Vietnam, and uh, where we've been living in Mexico. But yeah, they're hugely popular in Thailand. You normally see them on all of the insect stalls, and they have this these all different little sections. So you've got like eight sections on one stall, and one of them's got this like bucket. Like imagine if you were going to the candy store exactly and getting your little like. shovel yep. and getting like your your little bag of candy. We just here with insects doing that. Yep. Yep, and they are. Fried and just yeah, eaten like a snack. Yep, pretty much all of them are deep fried and they're just ready to go. They just taste like deep fried stuff and they're a little bit salty and it's totally fine. I'm I like eating crickets. I eat them here as well. They're called chapulinas here in Mexico. And I'm it's well into salty, it. Salty crunchy. I refer to it as just salty crunchy. Yeah, it, it's not offensive in any way. Grasshoppers because yeah. they're so big and like a little bit crazy and crunchy and you get little bits of wings stuck in your teeth. I don't think they're quite as good. Mm. I'm more into the crickets. The crickets. And the other one, where we've got a couple more to talk about, uh, the bamboo worm called non mai pai is the larvae of a moth. That sounds pretty gross. Which will be a name that will be in another language I can't pronounce, probably Latin. Omphisa fusidentalis. Doesn't really sound that right. appealing as if food, does so. it? But anyway, you know, they're inside bamboo and you pull them out of the bamboo and then you deep fry them just like the rest and eat them up. Uh, of course, we mentioned the palm weevil larvae of before. Course. Of course we of course did. Of course we did. Who wouldn't? Uh, they are high in fat, actually 53 to 56%, and their protein is 32 to 34%. So it's a lot more than chicken. Yeah. Crazy amounts of protein going on there for all you uh, bodybuilders out there. <laughs> this is your- <laughs> Stop with your protein shakes. Go eat some palm weevil larvae. <laughs> they also contain all nine essential amino acids they're really good for you they are actually a superfood forget the kale eat the palm weevil larvae yeah but of course the less super thing about these are they are gross gross. (laughs) little weevils that are burrowed into trees i mean like think about it it's basically just a mouth and an ass <laughs> oh yeah. That's all they are. It's like what a they little, look like too. Yeah, little like maybe one inch long, yellow, they've got the sort of rings around them all the way down. And they're pointy at the top and yeah. they're pointy at the end. They've got the little black face end, or maybe that's the ass end. I don't really know. It's one end is black and one end is not. And I don't know which end stuff goes in and which end and <laughs> stuff comes out. But once they're deep fried, they just don't really taste of anything, so it's fine. But yeah, crickets are my top choice. Go with crickets if you're a beginner. In the insect-eating world, yeah. I would suggest cricket's the way to go. Yeah, even I'll eat crickets. I'm fine. I'm up with that. Some crickets and mezcal. See. And mezcal we're going to be talking about as well. Look at all these lead-ins to our other episodes. There will episodes. be an episode on mezcal coming later in the year, so watch out for that on your feed. All right. We also wanted to talk a little bit about the influence of uh, the roti canai. All right. So roti is an unleavened fried bread. It originated from India and the method for making it was exported to Southeast Asia as many things from India was. Uh, In particular, it was really popular in Malaysia, but these days you will find it in the streets of Bangkok. But in English and in Chinese, roti kanai uh, is sometimes actually referred to as flying bread. And that's a term that comes from the process of them tossing and spinning it. So you might see them like slapping the, the the mixture onto the thing and folding it and throwing it in the air and they're sort of getting the air into it and folding it and then eventually putting your ingredients on the inside, which could be uh, really popular ones these days is banana, condensed milk, Nutella. So essentially what they're doing is they are taking this very flexible dough and they are stretching it out by literally throwing it. So they're holding onto it, but they're throwing the end of it. So as they flick it away, 
the bread stretches away from them, it catches the edge of the table, they pull it a little bit against the friction on the table and that stretches a bit more. Then they spin it around and they do the same thing again. They keep spinning that around and around to stretch the bread. Then they fold it over so that it gets layers. Because when it gets layers, you're gonna get that really flaky sort of texture to the bread when they actually mm-hmm. fry it. So that's how it works. Uh, you'll see them at a street corner doing this. They're just flicking this crazy bread and the second you'll see it, you go, oh, that's it. That's so what you, they were talking about. If you haven't seen Roddy bread before, it is, it's very cool to watch them do it. It's amazing the bread doesn't just come apart all the time. Yeah. It's just so flexible. And the interesting thing is that it really is versatile. It can be served uh, sweet, as we said before, or it can also be served um, savory, which is originally the way that it's used. So with like a dal, like a lentil curry, or any other type of curry, uh, like mutton or chicken curry, just use it to break it off and you dip it in or maybe use it like a spoon. That's the traditional way in India, but of course now when they're serving it in Bangkok as a street food, it's mainly sold more of a sweet dish. I mean, everyone in Bangkok and Thailand loves sweet, loves a bit of sugar in things. So you're having it filled with things like banana. Sometimes people are getting it with Nutella. Yeah. And they cover it with condensed milk as well. You can definitely find it with eggs inside as well. It's not quite as common. It seems to be more being done as a dessert thing. But if you ask for eggs, they probably will do you one with eggs. But they might also put condensed milk on top of it with the eggs in. So it's up to you if you want it that sweet, but you gotta you got to check them up if they're going like, oh, do you want me to put some sauce on it? The sauce they're trying to put on it is probably condensed milk. Yeah, which is super tasty. I have to say, actually, when it comes to uh, roti bread in Bangkok, I do both like the sweet and the savory versions equally. Mm, yeah, And banana, I don't have a big sweet tooth, actually. Banana with condensed milk is great as a little dessert or maybe even for a breakfast snack. Yep, they'll put it on a little, sadly, styrofoam, <laughs> usually styrofoam or paper plate, and uh, you'll have a little toothpick in the top and you just use the toothpick to pick up the pieces and eat it it's delicious but i would say that my favorite version especially in terms of savory versions is at karim roti mataba which is the restaurant in bangkok if you want to go and try the indian style roti bread they have been there since 1943 damn yeah they've been there for a while and they've been serving up their thai slash uh indian style uh, roti breads and their musaman curries for a very long time. Yeah, there's loads of different Thai curries there, but the musaman curry with the roti bread was definitely our favorite. But you can try all of them because really, it's oh, there's like a, a variety. It's a dollar or something for each curry, and the musaman the musaman curry I think was the best. Agreed. All right, I think we've made it almost to the end of the episode, so it's time to talk about dessert. Yes, so of course we couldn't do a Bangkok episode without talking about mango sticky rice or kiao niu mamwang. Uh, so this is so stupidly famous. I don't know anyone who doesn't love this dish, and if you haven't tried it, uh, you're about to love it when you do try it. So naturally, rice is a dish that is eaten at every meal in Thailand. Uh, The Thais consider a meal absolutely incomplete if they don't have rice in their dish, in their meal. It's almost like if they have a noodle dish, they'll have some rice on the side. Totes! It doesn't doesn't always happen with street food, but it it almost feels like that. They love rice so much. Yep. So naturally, they came up with a rice dessert. Uh, So it's actually made with glutinous rice. Now, don't want you to get confused. Glutinous rice does not contain gluten. It just means it is a particular rice that when you cook it, it becomes glue-like or sticky. It's a sticky rice. So we might refer to it as sticky rice from now on to not confuse people. 
Sure. And then you throw some fresh mango and coconut milk on top of the rice and sort of the, the sweet coconut milk mixes with that sticky rice and it just get, it, it de-stickies it just a little bit, but not much. So then you can dig into it with bits of mango and you've got that sweet, you've got that beautiful coconut sort of flavor and of course the rice is just the base that holds all of the flavors together and that is honestly it it is that simple and that amazing uh the peak times that you want to be having this dish however is in the summer months in may this is when mangoes are prime there are many places that will serve you frozen mangoes like it doesn't come out frozen but it has been frozen and it just doesn't have the same awesomeness to it you want that fresh mango at its prime on the sticky rice and then covered in nice slightly warmed condensed milk oh i'm drooling just thinking about it it's mm. delicious now our favorite place is not in bangkok so i'm not even going to mention it no, if you look I'm on sorry. our website and look up our information about kosamui then you'll be able to find out what our favorite place is but for bangkok i would say you should go to wong hyan yi sip song that yeah. all right i'm not even going to bother saying that anymore Go to the show notes, foodfuntravel.com slash Bangkok podcast to find out exactly where this is. It's a restaurant called Pom Prap Satu Pai near Hua Lampong, which is the main railway station. So the main railway station is very easy to find. Any taxi driver will know what that is. And this place is only open for four months of the year. So they'll serve from February through to June. So they'll kind of do the early uh, and the late of the season, but kind of try and get there in those main months that we said in April and May. And they're going to be just nailing it when yeah, it comes to the mango sticky rice. The problem with that is that April and May in Bangkok oh, are so hot, you'll so die. hot and humid. So you may not want to be there for April and May, but maybe if you get there in March. But of course, you can still get mango sticky rice no matter what time of the year you go to Bangkok, and it's going to be on a lot of menus. So it may not be always as great, but you can order it, and you can try it, and even when it's bad, it's still quite good. Yeah, like sex. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Thanks. <laughs> what are you trying to say? No. Outside of Bangkok and Thailand, actually, if you're looking for a kooky little fact, there was a hotel in Dubai, the Anantara, the Palm Dubai Resort. They actually attempted a Guinness World Record title by creating the largest serving of mango sticky rice in the world. And they actually did achieve this. The mammoth serving came in weighing at... 2,831 kilos. Good God. Over 6,000 pounds. And it was made from around 1,000 kilos of rice, 500 liters of coconut milk, 500 liters of coconut cream. Remember what we told you about coconuts before? Yeah, this is crazy unhealthy. 50 kilos of sugar and 300 kilos of mango. And, you know, just three liters of oil. Oh, just three liters? Yeah. I guess that was cooking for cooking the rice in. Maybe. I don't know. But that's huge. Yeah, so that is the biggest serving ever in the world. Guinness World Records has given it a stick of approval of the largest mango sticky rice in the entire world. Not even done by Thailand. And if you are in Bangkok out of season, you could also look up Sorbun Prakob as an option for a place to eat mango sticky rice. But seriously, it's all over the place. So at least you can get it. I'll just walk up to a street cart and give it a try. All right. And a, a final little aftertaste for this show. We've uh, had dessert, but we're still a little bit hungry, so we're going to head back out onto the street for one of our favorite Thai street snacks, Mooping. Mooping! Yes, this is delicious Thai-style grilled pork on a skewer, and it's um, been marinated in pounded coriander root, 
pepper and garlic all together on that nice marinade and I brushed it on there and then grilled it over a charcoal barbecue. Now mm. the charcoal is really important to Has make to this be. perfect. Yep. And that's what makes like the ends of the pork just go nice and charish and crispy. If they're just doing it on a regular grill, it's not going to be the same. No. You want all those flavors from the charcoal to come through. So this pork is always a little bit fatty and the sauce is actually normally a little bit sweet. So although we didn't mention there was sugar in the sauce, I'm pretty sure there's, oh, there's always, always sugar. Always sugar in the sauce, which does help the end of the pork caramelize a little bit as well. So if you see someone as you walk down the street, because this stuff is everywhere, it's not really something you get in a restaurant, although you can find it. It's more of a street snack. You see someone on the side of the street just grilling short little skewers with these sort of flattened grayish colored meat strips. So it's not like chunky pieces of pork. It is always thin strips of pork so that it cooks quickly and crisps up on the outside. And that's Mooping. Yep, the fresher it's made, the better it is. Yep. So make sure you grab some of that. Also, if you are looking for more tips on the best things to eat in Bangkok, we do have a couple of articles, like 17 essential things to eat in Bangkok. And we actually have some things listed there that we have not mentioned in this podcast uh, because they're not particularly Thai. There's a couple of places we love to go, like Chinatown, which has some incredible food if you love duck. Crispy pork belly. Yeah. So some of it's a little bit, it's like Thai influence, but it's really Chinese food that's just got to hint of Thai influence in there. Yeah, so but it's we, still fantastic. we made the decision to not include those in this particular podcast, but of Oyster course... Oyster omelettes oh, in Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've had them in Hong Kong as well. Are they really Thai? We don't know because we only did this amount of research and this is all you get. The episode's already too long. So uh, yeah, please feel free to go and check out our articles on the best things to eat in Bangkok. Uh, we do try to actively tell people to not go to Khao San Road. There are many, many better places to see in Bangkok. Yeah. If you're eating at the street carts along Khao San Road, you are not eating the you're good so street food. Check out all of our notes and all of our different articles for much better places to go. Once again, foodfuntravel.com slash Bangkok podcast to get the notes for this episode, which will link out to some of our other resources as well. Before we finish the show, we just wanted to mention that you can help us keep this show going and help us make more episodes by becoming a patron. Head to foodfuntravel.com slash extras and find out a little more about the benefits of becoming a patron of the show. Uh, you'll get bonus episodes, early access to new episodes, even ones from upcoming seasons and more. For just a couple of bucks a month, you can really help support this show and allow us the opportunity to commit more time to making new episodes. Yes, so go to foodfuntravel.com slash extras for more information and uh, to sign up and become a patron. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.